Welcome back, Brew Theology listeners. This is episode 40 of the Brew Theology podcast, and I want to take a moment right now and thank you all, all of our listeners, those of you who listen every week, those of you who listen most weeks, those of you who enjoy it, who are challenged by it, who are encouraged by it. We love doing this. This Every week I get excited that I get to release these podcasts. My buddy Dan does the editing. We are both excited. Janelle's excited. The whole team of people are excited. And on this episode number 40, we have the Fierce Rev, that's right, Fierce Rev, Anne Dunlap. Talking about reading Romans as resistance, we had Anne at the pub at Wit's End a couple of weeks ago, and she looks at the text that Paul wrote to the Roman church in the first century from a subversive angle. We continue this conversation with a second part with episode 41, because the conversation just kept going. There was so much to talk about. This was a really good talk. So at the beginning of this show, you'll hear Anne and hear her story, and we kind of get into Paul a bit, get into the first century a little bit, and then right when you're ready to dig into the resistance, we say, guess what? Part two is coming your way. So if you like this episode 40, if you like any of our past 39 episodes, please do us a huge favor right now. Go online to iTunes rate Brew Theology, review it. We would love a five-star rating. And if you could share that online with your friends and family, we would be greatly appreciative. We're at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Also, Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology. Make sure you check out that website, brewtheology.org. It is a pretty website. Janelle did a great job working that website. Let me tell you, Janelle is the kind of person, and she'll never say this about herself, but she's a badass. That girl, she's not only smart, and I mean, you've heard her on the show, she's brilliant, uh, but she's got all these incredible gifts behind the scenes, and so she does the formatting for the curriculum, she does the formatting for the web stuff, she puts the web, the, all the podcast stuff back on the webpage. Uh, I just got to give both Dan and Janelle tons of credit, tons of love. They don't want it, but you know what? I'm talking, I got the mic right now, and I got to say, I love you, Dan, and I love you, Janelle. You guys make this uh, a team effort indeed. Now, this team is headed to the Wild Goose Festival coming up in July, July 13th through 16th. If you go to wildgoosefestival.org, you can get your tickets. We are going to be at the Goose Stage, the Goose Stage. That's like a podcast, Goosecast. The Goosecast Stage is what they call it. So if you put in the promo code GOOSECAST17, that'll get you a promo code. Come see us. We're going to be at the happy hour the first day, 5.30 to 6.30. Have some beverages chat with us, and we'd love to talk to you after the show as well. We will also be on the main road with a booth. We're probably going to bring some koozies and other kind of fun stuff to talk to you, to just, hey, you know, here's some fun stuff, rep our stuff, but really we want you to be a part of this Brew Theology community across the nation. I've got friends who are starting this up in Michigan pretty soon. We've got some that are going to be happening up in Greeley in Colorado. Also, the Jersey Boys out in Jersey are rocking it right now. We desire depth of the soul for these communities to pop up all across this nation, and hey, maybe even the globe. We've got a leader guide. We've got curriculum. We've got the logo. We've got all kinds of support. And of course, we have the podcast as well, which is a microcosm of what we do in the Denver community every single week with multiple tables, multiple leaders. And ultimately, we want to train you in order for, uh, for you to replicate that in your community, but only in the way in which you understand your community. And that's why we have a plethora of resources. So you can kind of pick and choose. And we do a lot of the hard work for you in advance to get you going and to become part of this bigger family, this alliance called the Brew Theology Alliance. So go to the website, check that out, see how you can be a partner. Also, if you uh, just want to be a sponsor, you can do that as well. And you can donate. You could be a monthly 
monthly contributor. There's a Patreon page as well on the website. We thank you very much for your support in that area. This episode number 40 is brought to you by Grandma's House Beer. We're drinking some delicious stuff from Grandma's House Beer on South Broadway. Go check out Matt over there at Grandma's House. They've got a lot of different activities going on throughout the week, such as foul mouth cross-stitching, they've got bingo, they've got video game tournaments, and they've got a big back room that we use on occasion to bring in our guest speakers. And so they gave us some beer. It's, it's this lavender table beer that we're drinking tonight, along with the brand new West Coast IPA from their new brewer that's been there for about six months now. Tasty stuff. Also, there is a Japanese rice lager. You don't get that every day. Really good stuff. Easy to drink. I love it. And the guys who who also work in the back with Grandma's House, they do some sake back there. And so they've actually taught how to do the rice grain beer. Unbelievable. Unreal. So get your brew theology going. Um, man, I tell you what, right now, pause this episode if you can. Well, bef- let me tell you this first, and then you can pause it. Go to theologybeercamp.com because Grandma's House Beer is going to be at Theology Beer Camp, one of the 12 breweries coming along with speakers Peter Rollins and Trip Fuller to the Mile High City. And we want to give you guys some special beer and some special love. So go to TheologyBeerCamp.com, get your tickets, come to the city. We are going to nerd out with our geek out. Two days of craft nerdum, all kinds of fun, new content, some podcasting, cornhole, eating tacos and drinking some delicious beer and smoking some stogies at night. Do that. That's August 18th and 19th. We uh, are going to be taking the month of July off in our Denver community. But if you're in Denver and you're listening right now, we've got other fun stuff happening. And we're going to continue conversations and different things with other groups and communities as well as they continue to emerge due to this amazing alliance. Love you guys. Peace. And I will see you on the other side. All right, friends. Welcome to Liz's house. Thanks, Liz, for hosting. Around the table, we have Janelle, Liz, Ben. I'm Ryan. And tonight, we're going to be talking to... The Fierce Rev. I love that. The Fierce Rev and Dunlap talking about the resistance, reading Romans as resistance. Before we get into tonight's content, we are drinking Grandma's House beer. So what are you all drinking right now? Which, which beer from the brewery are you, are you liking? What's good on the lips? Uh, some sort of IPA by a new guy at the brewery, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Grandma's House has a new brewer. and This is his first batch. This is a West Coast IPA. Tasty stuff. It's got that hop in there, which I like the hops. I appreciate you know, and respect all the hops. hops. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of this group does not like hops. So we are drinking this fabulous lavender table beer. Is that what you said it was? It is amazing. Very light, wonderful flavor. It's quite lovely. So at this point, if we've known each other a while, would it be offensive if I put my nose in here and smelled the beer? That'd no, be- go ahead. See, you can- oh, you spilled it, though. <laughs> Yeah, you wasted That's it. I wouldn't do good. that to your uh, West sorry. Coast IPA. And then the, the, the <laughs> other beer is a it. rice lager. And the guys that help brew this also do some sake over there at Grandma's House. And they have sake beers occasionally on the side. So go ahead and check out Grandma's House on South Broadway. You can do some cross-stitching, some foul mouth cross-stitching, and spell some things that your mom would not uh, appreciate or respect. And speaking of things that moms wouldn't appreciate or respect, this topic tonight, I don't know if all moms would really dig this topic, because <laughs> it's all about resisting, and it's an unconventional way of looking at Romans. So, Anne, you, 
let's back up before we That's get into an interesting transition. Yeah, this is yeah. Before we we get into this, uh, you um, you you're, yeah, your upbringing and how did, how did you how did you join the resistance? It wasn't an overnight thing, was it? No, I don't. What's, think, your, what's your backstory? I don't. <laughs> I don't think anybody joins the resistance overnight. Um, maybe some some people do. Um, but I certainly didn't. I think it was um, being raised. Uh, I'm from Arkansas originally, and just being raised generally to like be interested in the world, the world beyond even the the walls of the church I grew up in. Um, and then uh, gradually over time, learning more about that world. And then when I was when I was 16, um, I went to. Uh, National Youth Gathering in Indiana for the Presbyterian Church. So it was all all youth from all over the country. Um, I grew up Presbyterian. This is in 1986, and um, I uh, got to hear a young woman activist um, who was living in Tucson, Arizona, um, who was involved in the sanctuary movement in the um, 80s and the 90s, which was about helping um, people who were fleeing the, the civil wars in uh, Central America and Southern Mexico eventually um, try to get to safety in the, in the United States. And <clears throat> she spoke about that work, uh, about her work and about the movement there, which um, I later learned was like, a, like even an international movement in some cases getting people to safety in Canada um, because the U.S. was funding these wars uh, in, in Central America against poor people, uh, basically, um, it was very hard for anybody to get any kind of asylum, even a hearing sometimes. Um, often folks were sent back into very dangerous and deadly situations. Um, and so in the 80s and early 90s, this movement developed to help um, Central American and Southern uh, Mexican um, folks uh, find safe harbor, find refuge, find sanctuary uh, in faith communities around the U.S. And... She spoke, and then a young man from El Salvador who was a refugee spoke about his experience um, and why he fled. And, you know, I had never, I was 16, you know, we were living in rural Kansas at that time, my dad's first church, and I, my, my mind was blown. And I'm sure, like, the people around me, the kids around me were like, whatever, can we go play volleyball outside again? Like, what, why are we listening to this? But um, for me, it was, it was a life changer. Um, and I remember so clearly sitting in the auditorium, like a couple, several thousand young, um, young adults, teenagers, and just my heart pounding and like realizing, um, like, this is going to be my work. Somehow this is going to be my work. And so I just kind of took it upon myself because uh, we lived in rural Kansas. Um, to learn more about that movement as much as I could um, at that age. And then in college, um, in high school, I did a couple of trips to the border that I talked about last week um, to the U.S.-Mexico border and saw kind of that reality, uh, the disparity on either side of the border for the first time and trying to understand, like, why is the world this way? Like, why is, why is there this much difference? Would you just cross an imaginary line? Um, from McAllen to Reynosa and back. Um, and so trying to really ask those questions and use the opportunities I had in college to um, dig into that and learn more about that. And then um, in the process of 
going uh, beyond the university library uh, in Dallas, um, actually ended up connecting with um, sanctuary workers just completely coincidentally. Um, I was looking for information and connected with um, sanctuary workers and activists, um, people of um, really deep faith who mentored me into the work and uh, into the movement. And that's really been my life ever since. Um, and I wouldn't say, it, even at any of those times, that it was like that was the moment. Although when I was 16, that was certainly a moment um, for me, but it's definitely been ongoing uh, growth <clears throat> and unfolding and understanding like the depths of harm that um, systemic causes in our country and trying to figure out how I can bring the best of myself and my gifts and all those things um, into that work to try to to try to build up a, a better world here, which is what I think we're all called to do, actually. Did your tradition uh, put call language around what you felt at 16? Did it like, did you feel called to be a missionary that would do this work or called to ministry because you felt this or did they not really talk about it that way? Um, so my dad uh, discerned a call to ministry when I was um, about eight or nine. And he talked to us about it. Um, and it wasn't unusual in our, in our small little town in Arkansas to see women um, in leadership roles, um, missionaries, seminary students. I think we were like super lucky in like the late 70s to have you know, these, these strong women leaders come into this tiny town in, in Arkansas of all places. Um, but I think it was really you know, my dad talking to us because we, we were going to have to move for him to go to seminary. Like this is... This is what you do. You listen um, for the call, whatever that is, but, but definitely using that language. I've been called to go to seminary. I've been called to be a minister. Everybody should be listening to the divine and what the divine is calling you to do. And so that was really um, offered to me at a really young age, that that was something that I could do too. And that it was never, by then the Presbyterian Church was ordaining women, and so it was never for me... Um, a question about that. Now you get later when I when I came out, and then you know the Presbyterian Church was not um, turned out not to be a safe place uh, in that respect. But um, but yeah, at a young age, I got that that gift early. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So then you went to seminary after this, and around what? How many yeah. years ago you went to ILF? I went to ILF. I spent my, my uh, after graduating from college, an aberrant year teaching junior high in New Mexico, um, and then, uh, which that was definitely not my calling at all, so that was good discernment. Um, I spent a year in Central America myself uh, through the Presbyterian Church, and then ended up coordinating that program until I was about 30, and then, um, uh, which was... Um, trying to do uh, mission work in a different kind of way that was really focused on justice, just relationship and mutuality rather than the kind of uh, more traditional model of like, conversion and, and paternalism and, and those kinds of things. Um, and uh, then we moved to Portland for a while and we lived there and I didn't start seminary until, um, well, we moved here right at the very tail end of 2005 and I started in January of 06. So I had a lot of life before I came to seminary. Um, 
Would you recommend that to young listeners? Hey, have some life before you go to seminary. I mean, I think everybody's journey is different. Right. So um, I've had uh, seminary colleagues much older than me who I thought should maybe have not, maybe they needed more experience. I don't know. But, um, and people who were fresh out of college who were wiser than I thought one could ever be at 23 or 24. So um, Kyle and Piper, if you're listening, that's you. <laughs> Kyle and Piper. <laughs> they didn't pay me to say that. So just so we're clear. But we all know it's true. <laughs> Whoever you are, Kyle and Piper. Follow what feels right in your heart. So, yeah. So, um, graduated from ILF in, in 08 and have been figuring out my way as a, as a minister ever since. So, yeah. So, when you were in seminary, you had some pretty influential professors. You read some commentaries. Did, and as, you were already on this trajectory, if you will. But these specific books and mentors had an impact on your life, at least to the extent to where... You shared a lot of that with us the other night at the pub. Yeah. Thank you, Witson, by the way. It was, a, it was a great night there. So That was a good stout. It was, yeah, it was tasty <laughs> yes, it stuff. Was. <laughs> so, like, so for instance, like tonight we're going to be talking about you know, Paul, this, this mm-hmm. uh, Jewish rabbi who was converted to something different, but yet we've all read it in a certain light for many, mm-hmm. many years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And now, due to your experience and your reading and your hermeneutics, you're mm-hmm. saying, oh, no, here's a whole new take on it. Mm-hmm. So who, who are some of these influential mentors that, uh, that really helped you unpack Romans in this new life before we get into it? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we chose ILIF, my partner from ILIF, um, because of its commitment to, to justice um, and, like, real embodied work in the world. Um, and that still didn't prepare me for what the, like the depth and richness of what that experience was going to be. Um, I mean, I can name several, you know, folks who were deeply inf- influential in the work that I do now. Uh, Dr. Tinker, who y'all y'all had um, down the block from us, uh, however many weeks ago that was. Um, there's a cat trying to escape the apartment. So, in case anybody's wondering what that was about. Um, uh, Dr. Tinker, certainly uh, Dr. Vincent Harding, um, who was emeritus by that time, but deeply impactful um, to me. Um, but in terms of like everything else, um, it was really Dr. Eisenbaum, Pamela Eisenbaum, who is uh, a Jewish feminist whose specialty is trying to figure out Paul, which I just thought was like, what an amazing perspective and gift um because paul has been used so harmfully in general and also towards um towards jewish communities to have somebody who who comes out of jewish tradition trying to to help us understand what's actually happening there um it was just such a rich experience and i had her intro class um which is five weeks just focused on paul's letters and that's it you're not doing any of the gospels or any of the other things, just that's your first immersion into, into new Testament, or at least it was, um, when I was, when I was there. Um, and, you know, I brought a lot of questions because there were things that didn't make sense to me about his letters, the traditional ways that some things got interpreted that, that conflicted with you read one chapter over and like it, like it's a completely different, um, 
those harmful ways. And it was just, it was just really a gift um, to have her for, for that class. And then I took her for, for Romans. Um, I had a um, class with her on the history of anti-Semitism in Christian theology. So tracing that through the centuries all the way up uh, through the Shoah, which uh, really uh, ripped me open in, in some pretty profound ways. Um, and then, like, just coincidentally, uh, one of my supervisors for my internship my last year, um, the faculty uh, advisor to, to our little um, cohort, so that was also um, fantastic. So, um, yeah, I think in terms of, because I love the Bible, I love Scripture, and I love the stories, um, having that experience with her, and the way that she taught at least me um, was really letting me dig into those questions as deeply as I needed to and um, exploring things that weren't even necessarily her specialty. When I took Romans, I really dug into the, the Romans 13 about obeying the authorities, um, submitting to the authorities, um, because that's been such a text that's used against um, activists a, a lot. Uh, and she's like, take it and and go for it. And I ended up writing like a doctoral length paper <laughs> as a master's student. Was like, I need more room. She's like, well, here's the doctoral requirements for this. I'm like, okay, I still need more room. Um, <laughs> but then in, in the um, anti-Semitism class, uh, just feeling like I had no words. I was in, inarticulate all of a sudden. And I'm somebody who loves words, obviously, because I'm still talking about this. Um, and her gift to just let me be in that space, um, even though, you know, I had assignments that were due and reflections I had to write. And like half of it was like, I don't know what I believe anymore. And I don't know what to tell you about this. And, and that, that was fine. That was okay. So during this time, you already loved the scriptures and the stories, but then you got to this point where you fell in love with Paul, this Jewish man who is pretty influential, as they would say, <laughs> kind of a big deal in the kind Western world deal. as it even today. So you have some who love Paul, some who hate Paul. You love him. You have different versions of Paul out there. So let's unpack Paul. Who is Paul? Who, who has the Western world painted him to be? Church fathers on. And, and then we'll get to what yeah. do you think of that Paul versus the Paul that you've grown to love? Yeah. I mean, I think the traditional um, kind of understanding of Paul is that uh, he was a Jew who persecuted Christians, and then he had this amazing conversion um, experience and came to know Jesus, whatever that means, air quotes for those of you who can't see me. Um, and then, you know, went about converting other people to believing in Jesus, believing in being the operative uh, preposition of choice there. Um, and thus founding the, the Christian church in the West and teaching the, um, you know, the justification through faith, um, the importance of grace, uh, and that, you know, we're saved through, through faith and not, not through works, as if what he would have been converted from um, was all about works. So I think, I don't know, what would you add to that? Yeah, I, w I would say that would be the main view of a, a man who was on a very specific Jewish path that we were taught, 
a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous, look at me, circumcised on the eighth day, I'm right. a badass Jew, but then I came to know this Jesus, I'm going to do the air quotes like you, <laughs> and suddenly, yeah, it's, it's this different kind of grace. Uh, and, but we forget the whole time when we're reading these letters that it's still a Jewish man the entire right. time, who still went to the temple, by the way, people forget that. Yeah, I think um, there's a, the traditional understanding of him is he converted away from Judaism. He, he no longer was a Jew after that you know, that moment recounted in Acts, um, which Paul himself never actually talks about in his letters. Um, he's actually super vague about whatever this experience was, um, which for it to be such a huge big deal in Christian tradition, you know, blinded off the horse and blah, 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 huge art pieces. Like he, doesn't, he doesn't actually talk about it. Um, and the only time he really refers to it um, in Galatians and in, and in Philippians is uh, only to make the point that he has had an encounter with the Christ to kind of bump up his authority because his authority is being challenged. It, it triggers something interesting, which I've, I've been thinking about ever since you spoke, and which is this idea that and we can let, I would love to talk more about like faith versus works, and I know that's a big deal in, in interpretation, but you know I wonder if um, to have a profound spiritual experience, it seems like it's almost more than you want to talk about. It's almost nothing needs to be said once it happens. And yet I feel like, and I, I'm not, I didn't come from an evangelical background. I was not being asked to testify in front of the church and, and all of this stuff. But it seems like sometimes, sometimes the attitude of um, having faith is similar to a very immature attitude of what it means to love somebody where it's like this mm. constant sense of like bliss and romance. And like, hmm. I mean, is that true that when people feel like they found Jesus, like, and they're connected to God and lots of air quotes going on here, like, <laughs> like it should be this, like this, like ever renewing sense of like, Oh, like all <laughs> the time, <laughs> but actually, you know, but when you talk about like, how it's been used or misused or some of the harm in that, that that's not realistic, that people don't have ecstatic connection with God all the time, even Paul? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things um, I would say about that. I mean, I, I don't know that even Paul would say that he has an ecstatic experience all the time. He talks about, like, the thorn in the side of his flesh and the, the struggles that he has, and he ends up in jail, and definitely seems to have, like, a, a grounded kind of God is faithful, um, and God will continue to be faithful, and I'm going to be, I'm going to continue to be faithful to the work that God has called me to do, um, which is a very Jewish concept um, of, of covenant made with Israel. Um, God's going to do God's part. Um, the, but I think I think you're right. Like mystical experiences, um, they're mystical because they can't really be put into kind of logical language, and actually. Um, Pam Eisenbaum talks about this in, in her book, um, uh, Paul Was Not a Christian, uh, that, you know, why, why do we try to attempt to put into words an experience that Paul really wasn't interested, as far as we can tell, trying to, trying to make meaning where Paul himself wasn't even particularly interested, um, as, as far as we can tell, um, in, in putting in, in, into creating meaning out of what seemed to have meaning for him was something transformational about that encounter. But he seems to be uh, very clear that he, he didn't stop being Jewish. Once you understand what it is, what you're reading, you're going to strip back the layers of tradition. 
That doesn't yeah. feed into a lot of the narratives in some of our traditions, though, where you have this ecstatic moment and then everything that was is gone and everything new comes to be. And I think at least in my tradition, that would be one of the reasons we use that hermeneutic is because it feeds this idea that all is wiped away and all is made new. And now you can walk into the future with this totally different thing than you had before. I, I heard these stories growing up all the time, both most more on the mission field. Um, the, and I think, and I'm not delegitimizing them, um, but there were many that were local as well. And being able to tie that to Paul and the power of Jesus to transform this Jew into a Christian, like that was a huge part of yeah. the whole story of what it means to be Christian, that you can be completely radically transformed in one moment for the rest of your life. And now I don't really think that. <laughs> the, the, and the implication of that obviously leads to thousands of years of anti-Semitism as right. well. So if it's, Whereas you're talking about this, this uh, on, the, on the mission field when you're saved, it's this old bad self. Well, Paul's old bad self was Judaism, according to that framework. Right. Ouch. That's right. So you're, you're, so Judaism then gets set up as this faulty religion that we need to be saved from. And that's both ridiculous and super problematic. Um, uh, and one of the things um, I'm committed to trying to, to undo in the all the rest of the work that I do um, is trying to help us figure out. And it's not just Paul. I mean, the, the, the gospels are also, except for Luke written by Jews. Um, some of the, some of the other um, new Testament literature written by Jewish folks um, and trying to understand their experience as Jewish folks underneath this uh, uh, oppression of the Roman empire. Um, so you've got, you know, Pam Eisenbaum working on, on Paul. You've got, like, Amy Jo Levine, who's another Jewish feminist, working on the Gospels um, and really undoing, um, you know, a couple thousands of years worth of harmful interpretation. But is it fair to say that when Paul is talking about Judaism and, and grafting new branches onto old trees and, and everything having to do with the the Jewish lineage and Judaism and where it's gone wrong and all of this stuff. Is it fair to say that he was critiquing an aspect of Judaism that was maybe more legalistic, less spiritually connected, um, oppressive, or and then that, that somehow because of it was politically convenient at the time of Constantine and before to say, well, he means, he means Judaism, not, not like this very specific problem in Judaism, which was sort of the, the Pharisees and the, the legalisticness of it. Or, or is that just the story that I've been fed my whole life? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think, I think traditionally the answer to that is, you know, it's, it's a problem of Judaism because Judaism doesn't have Jesus. Um, cause Jesus was a Jew. So <laughs> wait a second. Yeah. So, um, Hold so on. there's that. Um, and, and you can't escape and cause it's present in Romans. Like there, there's definitely some kind of tension that, that Paul has w within his own community, which is kind of how I, I'm trying to, I try to understand it is, you know, in the same way that I might, um, have tension with, um, like uh, United Church of Christ, UCC, 
um, regional governing bodies. I don't agree with how they do things. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're like, I don't know, maybe it does mean they're not Christian, but I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> I'm get myself in it. The Pope Hello. will do it. You can do um, it. But, you know, all we have to understand all of that literature is Jewish communities trying to figure out amongst themselves, like, who is this, who is this Jesus? And, and, and what was he here for? And how does all of this fit into the fact that um, we're getting the, can we cuss on your yeah. podcast? Yeah. We're getting the shit smashed out of us by Rome, like every other day. Um, we're getting expelled. We're getting thrown into jail. We're getting uh, um, exiled out of, you know, in, in, in the case of the letter of the Romans, you have the, the Jewish members of the community have been exiled out of Rome and now quote unquote welcomed back by Nero to make himself look good. Um, and not everybody agrees on what the right way is to be faithful um, in that in those contexts, to be faithful to the one God. You know, there are um, folks within Judaism who are happy to sell out to Rome in, in, in hopes of trying to gain some access to power and access to wealth. That's not any that more doesn't or less sound different than... familiar at all. Right? That's a human problem. That's not a Jewish problem. Um, and Pharisees actually get a really bad rap because they are trying to negotiate a space in between you know, what, what the Jesus movement and John the Baptist might, might be more radical, um, but the completely like sold out Herods and, and, and that level of the tradition. And they actually participated in some of their own efforts at resistance, like trying to tear down um, symbols uh, like Roman imperial symbols that, that the empire would try to put up in, in their synagogues. That's not how we usually think about Pharisees. We usually think about them as like, you know, buttoned up and their ties really neat and, you know, very legalistic and all of that. And um, they're, you know, deeply faithful, deeply studious of their stories and of their texts um, and trying to figure things, figure things out as well. And all these people are talking to each other, you know, they're hanging out together, they're having meals together um, and trying to figure it out. Um, so. Whatever it is that, that Paul is upset about in Romans with, the, with a faction of the Jewish community, if you will, you know, it's, only, it's only a piece of it. I think he doesn't quite get, probably, um, why um, other folks... Dr. Eisenbaum says she thinks that um, what Paul actually changes his mind about is not so much about, about Jesus, but about what time it is, historically. Now, now is the time that um, all of the nations are going to come. We get this in the prophets. The nations are going to come to the mountain. The nations have to come as the nations. So we don't want you know, the Gentiles to, be, to become Jews in, in, in that sense. But we want like, everybody worshiping the one God instead of Rome, the Roman gods. We, so we get that in Romans. And that's what time it is now. Now is the time for that to happen. Um, and I think you know, he doesn't get why not everybody sees that. Which, you know, that's legit. But he still says at the end of chapter 11 in Romans, God's going to take care of all of it. Um, all Israel will be saved. All means all. Um, so he may not understand it, uh, and it may frustrate him, but he's absolutely certain 
that God will take care of Israel as a nation, as a people. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. And he had an ecstatic experience, right? Like, right. so, and very, a very few number of people had had that experience at that point. But I, I, it also strikes me too that as an allegory, perhaps it's also setting up the difference between supposedly Jesus coming in and kind of, or people having visions of Jesus saying the rules no longer apply. And so that's what the Christian elk kind of is starting to be set up as. And that maybe needs that allegory needs a villain, which is the over studious Pharisee class. And that may not be doing justice to, you know, the centuries of the millennia of Talmudic studies and all of this stuff. It's sort of, it's a little unfair perhaps, but it was this new vision that they were forming for themselves. Yeah, I think it was about 10 years ago when somebody had said, hey, uh, you should read the Talmud, and you can see that there are seven different types of Pharisees around the time of the first, second, third century, which I'm like, well, I thought there was just one type of Pharisee, <laughs> and they're all bad. And which, they're all bad. Which means yeah, all yeah. Juda- Judaism is bad. So, okay, so here we have this Saul turned Paul, which is funny because that's another, people want to use that one too. Oh, now he's for the Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, Right. now that he's Paul. But now you have this, this Paul guy who's inclusive, seems to be inclusive because he has this experience with Cornelius. Is that Cornelius? That's right? Am I right? Shake your heads. Or is that Peter? My bad. No, I, don't it's know, Corne- it's I don't know what you're talking about now. So, <laughs> so Paul, this new man <laughs> who's now inclusive to Gentiles and Jews because he is a Jew. And now he's, but you have this, this whole narrative where he's anti-women and he's anti Gay and he's uh, anti women and he's yes again <laughs> yeah but that also is something that evidently that we've been reading into the text it's literally there fundamentals can say here it is in these scriptures and there are clobber passages both with females and LGBTQ right and so what do we what do we do about that we haven't even gotten to the empire we yet, haven't but gotten is, to the empire but yet. that's okay because this will probably be a two part episode neither oh all right um just keep talking just keep talking. Yeah, uh, for me, the stuff with women is a little trickier because it does seem, you know, in, uh, uh, very blatant. But it's also one of those things that's completely contradicted by everything else that he writes about. That one couple of passages about women being silent and women covering their heads. And, um, you know, meanwhile, you go to these lists of the people that he's, you know, say hi to Priscilla, you know, my fellow apostle. And say hi to all these different women who are clearly leaders in these communities that he's setting up all around. So it's like, which one is it? And um, there are definitely scholars who think some of the harshest of that, that stuff that's, that's anti-woman in his letters is actually imported in later. Yes. Um, and it's highly cultural as well. Like the context of when he w- what he was saying to who he was writing I mean, I've heard it has to do with some of the cults that were in the area, and he's trying to contradict women coming in from those traditions into the church, trying to kind of put some boundaries on them. Yeah, so it's very and I think culturally it could also bounded. Be like, could y'all just quit gossiping in the back while we're trying to have church? <laughs> yep. Yeah, like as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. like well, be, because in Jewish tradition, <laughs> men and women are sitting on the other side, on separate sides. Right. So. You can't ask your husband a question in the middle of church without interrupting everything. Yeah, so, so be quiet. there's that as well. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, 
have some have some reverence uh, in the space. Now we just have coffee bars, so it's all good. So yeah, so there you go. Um, still have the gossip though. Sadly, um, we gossip at the coffee bar. Uh, the LGBTQ stuff. Um, my stance on all of those texts is that absolutely zero of them have anything to do with um, homosexuality or um, gender orientation or anything as we understand it now. None of them. So I'm not, I'm in some ways I'm not like even willing to entertain an argument about, well, it says this, well, it's like they, they have nothing to do with that. None of them, that, that whole list, they have nothing to do with what we understand um, around Around gender, same gender loving uh, relationships, um, LGBTQ stuff uh, in general. And the Romans, there's one of those texts in Romans, um, the beginning of the letter. And I understand that text to be, as I, as I mentioned uh, last Thursday, it's a, it's a slam on what happens in the imperial cult. It is not a condemnation of same gender loving people. It's a slam on what happens in the imperial cult and how power um, abuses um, people's bodies uh, for its own pleasure and benefit. Um, there's another uh, later in one of the Corinthians um, of Paul's um, that sometimes gets translated as homosexuality, and, it, and it, the word in Greek just really means like men hanging out on couches. So we don't really like even like what does that even mean? Like we don't even know. Um, but the possibility that it could be like y'all, please don't be like Rome. And we all know like that can go a little overboard sometimes, right? But when you're when you are trying to resist the ways that Roman um, oppression and power, what those things look like, um, it would make sense to me to be like, don't don't do those things, <laughs> you know? Um, Just like the hedonism of of the Caesar and the palaces and the and the exploitation and the sexual exploitation right. of people. Yeah. All right. So Paul was against Netflix and chill. Okay. And that, my friends, was episode 40. Episode 41 is coming to you in one week, continuing this conversation with the Fierce Rev and Dunlap, talking about reading Romans as resistance, digging deeper into what that looks like today in the 21st century. If you like this episode, please share it, and we will see you next week. Peace. Peace.